loving, gracious, compassionate, holy, and just. You are bigger than the universe, and yet you know each one of us by name. In spite of our faults, you love us. And in the midst of this chaotic and ever-changing world, we seek to turn over to you the things that keep us awake at night, the things that make our hearts anxious, the things that discourage us, the things that stretch us beyond our own strength and wisdom. We lay these things at your feet, Father. And we pray for those who are ill or injured, those recovering from surgeries or ailments, those whose bodies and minds are failing them. Where healing is needed, we ask you to heal. Where hope is weak, we ask you to give strength. And when our faith stumbles, help us back to our feet, Father. Help us to love as Christ has taught us to. May your spirit make us a light and may your church be a place of hope and renewal. Make us a light to others in the midst of such dark times. And Father, we pray for our pastor and his wife in their travels. We'd ask that you would watch over them, grant them your protection as they travel, as they visit um, with loved ones and their time in Memphis. May it be productive and useful. And we ask these things through Christ our Savior. Amen. So we will indeed, as promised, be continuing in the plagues of Egypt. We won't finish the plagues of Egypt today. Um, I'm going to save the last two plagues for the end of the month because I think they fit together quite nicely. So, this morning I am going to read uh, from chapter 9. In chapter 9 we have the 5th plague, the 6th plague, and the 7th plague. Because it's long, I'm going to break it up. I'm not going to read the whole thing. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 13, which follows the 5th plague, um, or excuse me, the 6th plague, and is the announcement of the seventh plague. And then I'm going to um, and read part of that, skip part of it, and read part of it to finish it. It'll make sense when I get going. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time... I will send all my plagues on yourself and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. 
Now therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and livestock into the house. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So now I'm going to jump over to verse 27. Obviously the hail comes and destroys everything. So picking up in verse 27. Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of this city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out from the city of Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Father, grant us now the ears to hear, the eyes to see, hearts eager to learn as you feed us from your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord my God, in Christ's name, amen. So, how many people here like to be told what to do? Probably not many of us. Sometimes we like to be told what to do when we don't know what to do. In a hard situation, a confusing situation, I'd really rather somebody just tell me what to do. It's why Christians in America love to have the law preached to them. I don't need the gospel. I've already been saved. Give me the law. Tell me what I need to do. But as a rule, outside of the church, we don't like to be told what to do. No one tells me what to do. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I will decide what's best for me. And maybe even others. And if we don't say those things because we fancy ourselves as polite, we don't want to look bad, we still have those thoughts. And our actions demonstrate our true feelings. We resist and resent being told what to do. Particularly when what we are told does not match what we think we want. Even when what we are being told to do is for our own good or the good of others. 
if the commander's suggestion does not fit with what my heart thinks, then we resist. And sometimes to the detriment of ourselves or even others. So how do you react when God tells you what to do? Why should we obey him? Do we resist? Do we resent? Or do we obey without grumbling, without any grudges? What your actions say about you is what your heart thinks. I want you to think about this question this morning as we go through this. Was Pharaoh a unique individual? I mean unique in how God dealt with him. Certainly his situation was unique, being the king of the most powerful nation on the planet at the time. But maybe in other ways, he's not so unique. So wrestle with that as we go through. Now here's the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. No one tells Pharaoh what to do. He is the one who gives the orders. And then this Moses and Aaron turn up, Hebrews. saying, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. Let my people go. And Pharaoh's answer, who is this Lord that I should obey and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? The person who gives an order has power because of who they are. Am I right, General? Because of who they are. And when we know there's a higher power, we have a tendency to obey that. When we know that a higher and trustworthy power, a good authority is in charge, we can go along with the commands much, much easier. It suits us better. And that's what Pharaoh's after. Pharaoh wants his Hebrew slaves to listen to the overseers who have to listen to the foreman who have to listen to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is at the top of the chain of command, not the Hebrew slaves. So Pharaoh's question naturally is, what gives this God of these slaves a right to give me commands? I am the king of Egypt. I am a God. How can I take instruction or orders from a God of slaves? Or from Moses, for that matter. And ultimately, it's not, it's not Moses that Pharaoh is dealing with. Moses is God's messenger. Pharaoh is dealing directly with God. Moses doesn't believe it. In, verse, in chapter 6, verse 30, he says, Why would Pharaoh listen to me? And God replies, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. So the issue is not whether Pharaoh will listen to Moses, but whether Pharaoh will listen to God. And this answer that God gave Moses is in some ways an echo of creation. I told you that over and over that the Exodus is a continuation of the creation story. Adam was created in God's image to be like God on the earth as God's representative. And Adam failed to live up to that image, to act like God, to rule as God's representative. And now we see here, 
God has made a man again, Moses, like God, in the face of Satan. The salvation picture in Exodus is so wonderful. It's fulfilled in Christ. As Christ restores humanity, restores us to our God-imaging rule over this creation. But Pharaoh will not listen. His heart is hard, and it hardens after almost every plague. He hardens his heart, God hardens his heart. He hardens his heart, God hardens his heart. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Why should I let God meddle in my affairs? Why should I let someone else have say-so about my life? Christians are not immune from these thoughts. Sometimes we try to limit our obedience to God's word. What's the least amount I can get away with? How far do I really have to go? What is a reasonable sacrifice? But why should I deny my feelings? Doesn't God want me to be happy? Sure he does. Maybe I overdo it. Maybe I shouldn't be so obedient. Maybe I should give in to my heart. Well, perhaps we can get some answers from these plagues about some of these questions. See, the plagues are more than just God bringing judgment down on Pharaoh and his kingdom. We've already talked about a theme of decreation going on, creation, decreation. And there's a defeating of this whole pantheon of Egyptian gods, over 80 of them. And finally, this is the cosmic battle between God and Satan. It's the battle of the seed and the serpent promised in Genesis 3. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. It's a story of judgment, no doubt. But make no mistake, it is also a story of redemption. And you might say, well, of course, Mike, God's going to bring the Hebrews out. Yes, he is. But it's a story of redemption for all the nations. It's a story of redemption for Egypt. And Pharaoh's hard heart is at the center of this battle. I wonder how often our hearts are at the center of spiritual battle. Probably frequently. Probably frequently. What do I want to do versus what I know I should do? What do I want to do versus what God's word says I should do? And what do I do when my heart wants something and I don't really think God's word addresses it? Life is full of questions. And you know that the 10th plague, which we'll look at next time, that's the deal breaker for Pharaoh, right? Why not just go to the 10th plague then? Why do we have to have nine before it? How come God just couldn't do the 10th plague and be done with it? The answer, I think, can be found in verses 15 and 16 of our readings. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with the plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
God could have liberated the Hebrew people with the wave of his hand. But the ten plagues demonstrate his power so that God's name might be proclaimed and worshipped in all the earth. Egypt is at the center of the earth at this time. Egypt is the world power. So as we come to the the seventh plague, I want to look back very briefly at the sixth plague, the plague of boils on the skin. And that is uh, in the verses just before chapter 9, 8 through 12. So just like the first five plagues, this sixth plague has three results. Pharaoh's gods are humbled. Pharaoh's magicians, wizards, are humiliated. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And we know that the goal of the plagues is to what? So that God might make himself known to the world. So this plague of boils, now we're affecting the Egyptians' physical bodies. The Egyptians are big into medicine. They're big into health. And their gods are helpless against these boils. Absolutely helpless. And the boils affect Pharaoh's magicians. So much so that they're not unable to stand before Moses. Now remember, earlier we read that Moses stood before Pharaoh like God. So you see the play here. Pharaoh's magicians, Pharaoh's prophets, Pharaoh's men cannot stand before God's man. And I think if you remember Psalm 1, you might remember something in there about the unrighteous not being able to stand with the righteous. And we're going to look at that some more down the road. So here are the Egyptians covered with painful, oozing sores. Kind of like Job. Remember Job? Job tried to scrape them off, and his wife said, curse God and die. And what did he say? Should we not expect good and bad from our Lord? Pharaoh and his people are seeing the, the bad. So at the same time God is humbling the gods of Egypt, he's humiliating Pharaoh's magicians. Now the magicians were able to repeat the plague of blood and frogs. They couldn't do the bugs. So to their credit, they just, this, this God is powerful. We can't, we can't match up. There's more power in God's little finger than in all of our arts. So in the fourth and fifth plagues, we don't hear anything about the magicians. It's as if, poof, they disappeared. Now presumably, they're there watching all of this. But they're smart enough to figure out they are outmatched. They couldn't replicate this plague, and now they are personally affected by it. Imagine if you go to your priest, that's who his magicians are, and he's covered from head to toe with boils, pus oozing out. And you're going to go see him because you've got the same condition and expect him to cast a spell to make you better. He can't make himself better. How's he going to make you better? So God is hitting at the heart of their religions now. 
So then, how do the boils come about? God tells Moses to go to a furnace. Do you know what a furnace was for? As for making bricks. Go to the furnace and grab a handful of dust. And go to Pharaoh. And scatter the dust in the air. Now this was a religious ceremony, incidentally, for the um, Egyptians, the magicians. They would scatter ashes and give blessings to the people and to Pharaoh. So God turns their blessing into a curse on them. Moses gets these bricks out of the this dust, these ashes out of a furnace where the Hebrews struggled and slaved to make bricks to build things for Pharaoh. And God sends his man to get the ashes and scatter them to the wind. And this is how the boils come across the land of Egypt. But not the land of Goshen. This happened to every one of Pharaoh's experts. It happened to every one of his people. Now I've told you that there's a creation-decreation theme here from the beginning of the Bible. But if you know your Bible well, you know that in the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, some of these same plagues are represented again in a much greater in a much more tragic fashion. <clears throat> so just like Pharaoh and his people couldn't accept God's word, every sinner who does not yield to Christ, who is not in Christ, who is not blessed with the gift of the Holy Spirit, will face the same judgment one day. Without Christ to stand in his place. We'll never be able to stand in the presence of God unless our sins are covered by the blood of Christ, protecting us from the boils, from the plagues, from the things that are to come. The boil plague is coming again. In fact, it says in Revelation 16, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we want to know. We have a lot of questions about the book of Revelation. How, when do these things happen? But what it does show is enough of a warning for those who have not accepted Christ. They will one day face God's wrath and it'll be more than just boils. And it'll be eternal. There will be no end. So now we get to our plague um, midway through chapter 9. The hailstorm like had never been seen. It destroys everything except the wheat which had not yet come up. And God warned Pharaoh it was coming. God told him through Moses exactly what would happen, just like before. God told Pharaoh that he had raised him up for just this purpose. Pharaoh could have made one of two choices here. Pharaoh could have said, God, you're right. 
you are the God of the world. And God would have been glorified. I raised you up for this purpose. Pharaoh made the other choice. His heart was hard. Based on all that he had already seen, it should have been obvious to Pharaoh who God was and what he could do. He could wipe Egypt and all her people off the face of the earth with simply a wave of his hand or utterance of his word. Pharaoh yet refused to give in to the word of God. The wording in verse, verse 14 is pretty significant. Literally, if we were to interpret the Hebrew literally, what God said to Pharaoh is, I will send the full force of my plagues against your heart. It's Pharaoh's heart that is at the center of this struggle. It's our heart that is so often at the center of our struggles. See, the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh's heart was the foundation of their entire society and culture. It's the source of all Egyptian progress. So they considered, we know Pharaoh as a god. Of course, if Pharaoh agrees, I am a god. And God says, you still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. So Pharaoh, by setting himself against God's people, he's really setting himself against God and declaring himself to be the God of the world, the God of the universe, this God of the Hebrew slaves. He's another minor God that served me. But we know that God is the one that put Pharaoh on his throne and allowed him to stay there. And he did it for the specific purpose of raising Pharaoh up so that God could use him. Paul speaks of this in Romans, doesn't he? We talk about potters and clay, and we talk about pharaohs. Paul talks about pharaohs. And for many of us who came from traditions maybe that didn't follow Reformed teaching, those chapters are pretty earth-shattering for us. Oh my gosh, did you see what this says God did? That could be me too. It's powerful stuff. It's important stuff. So important that Paul is bringing it forward into the New Testament, into his magnum opus, the book of Romans. See, the plagues had a global implication. They're not just for Pharaoh. It's sending a message to the world and that God would be worshipped around the world. And I guess maybe there wasn't a better way than to send plague after plague after plague to Egypt and rescuing his people. In verse 29 of chapter 9, we read that God stopped the hail. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. He's showing Pharaoh how much power he has over everything. Absolutely everything. The passage says the storms destroyed everything in the fields except the wheat. Remember how Genesis begins? Genesis chapter 1. God told the land to produce 
vegetation. Now he's taking it all away. He's taking it all away from Pharaoh. God is showing Pharaoh, you are not the God of the universe. You are not the creator of your kingdom. You are not the creator of the universe. These idols that you worship are powerless. They can't create anything. I alone create and decreate. Pharaoh's Egypt is coming down around him. Before we move forward, there's one more thing in this plague that we need to see. Now, there's a lot of destruction, there's a lot of pain, and there's a lot of misery in these plagues. And Pharaoh's not the only one suffering. His people are suffering. His people that believe he is a God suffer because of his words, his actions, his refusal to yield to the true God, his hard heart. This suffering, this judgment is coming directly from the hand of God himself for reasons we've already observed. And we might wonder, is there no mercy for these people? Aren't these people really victims of their leader? Aren't they victims of the culture they live in? Is there no one to fend for them except their helpless, counterfeit gods made out of wood and stone? Pictures of animals with men's heads, vice versa, beetle heads on men. If the Pharaoh never heard of the God of the Hebrews, why should we expect the average Egyptian to know anything about the God of the Hebrews? Philip Graham Ryken says this in response to those kinds of questions. Demonstrating God's praiseworthy power always demands a response. And there are but two ways to respond. One is to believe that the Lord is God and to obey what he commands. And the other is to doubt God's power, refuse to praise him, and then sit back, wait, and see what happens. How often do we do that ourselves? How often do we ignore God's word, sit back and do nothing? Or just continue along to do what might be easiest? Well, this will impact me the least. I won't be faced with this terrible or this difficult thing. I'll just continue doing this because that's what my heart desires because it's easier. So in order to show the world, how Pharaoh would respond. There's a bit of a test here in this plague. God said to Pharaoh, give an order now to bring your livestock and everything in you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every man and animal and they will die. So here in the midst of this judgment on Pharaoh and his people, God reaches out his hand and offers redemption. Go tell your people. You yourself, bring your livestock in. Bring your people in. Protect them. 
from this judgment. So some of Pharaoh's officials hear this, and they scamper off right afterwards. And what do they do? Well, they go and bring their livestock in and their slaves in and their people in. And the other people do as well, but not Pharaoh. Not Pharaoh's inner circle, his trusted advisors. They're still trusting Pharaoh. Even after all they had seen, even what they had witnessed with their own eyes, the chaos around them, Egypt coming apart in front of their very own eyes. The people are going to begin to die. And Egypt is going to shrink in size. And it's going on in front of their very eyes. I'm just going to step back see what happens. I guess the other option was they could have taken some and made some prayers for their Egyptian gods. Maybe there's something one of them could do. After all, they had gods of weather. Stop the storm. In the midst of judgment, God told Pharaoh, use your head man. Protect these things. Pharaoh refused. Only those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord did as God offered. You see, the plagues are starting to make believers of the Egyptians. They saw God's power at work. And they didn't see paintings on walls. They didn't see carved wooden statues or rock statues or pieces of gold doing anything. They simply knew that this man called Moses said he was sent by God and he said things and he held out his arms and these things happened. The word of God caused these things to happen. And we know this because later on the Bible's going to say when the Israelites went out many other people went with them. Who are the other people? They're in Egypt. They're slaves in Egypt. They're leaving Egypt. The other people must be Egyptians who came to believe the word of God. And so Riken goes on to say, even when he was judging Pharaoh for his sins, God had Egypt's salvation in mind. We can see this other places in Scripture. Jeremiah, in chapter 29, prophecies about Egypt. Isaiah promised a day when God would say, Blessed be Egypt, my people. The Psalms speak of it. Ezekiel speaks of it. And these promises are fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the gospel goes forth and the Holy Spirit is poured out on all the nations, all the tribes and tongues. When the Egyptians heard the apostles declare the wonders of God in their own language. So the salvation of the Egyptians starts with the Exodus. Their judgment, Israel's deliverance. That is where Egypt's salvation begins. It's where our salvation begins. And it all stems from God's words, God's commands. 
the people of Egypt believed that what God said through his prophet Moses was true. It's how salvation always comes, a response to God's word with faith and obedience. Some of Pharaoh's people didn't believe. Along, this is the first time where we read, along with Pharaoh, they hardened their hearts too. Pharaoh's advisors, Pharaoh's closest circle, their hearts are hard too. And our response to God is always a matter of the heart. A heart that is not set on God's word is dead set against God's will. So these people don't fear God. In spite of what he's done, they don't heed his word. They just decide to take their chances. All that's left now is the wheat that hasn't come up yet. Everything else destroyed. The vegetation destroyed. The livestock destroyed. The plagues now are coming from above, from the skies. Don't you see creation being decreated here? The trees are blown over. They're stripped bare of leaves. The earlier plagues had caused difficulties, no doubt. But as far as we know, they didn't actually kill anyone. And now death has come. Death has come. And Pharaoh begs Moses to make the storm stop. And he confesses that he sinned and that God is right. So Moses intercedes, the storm ends, and Pharaoh's hard heart was far from truthful. He only wanted disaster to stop. He didn't mean a word of his confession. He was seeking a favorable result, and he's willing to say anything to get it, even if it meant confessing sin and acknowledging this Hebrew God. He didn't have to believe it in his mind. He only had to pretend. And by doing so, he placed himself in even greater jeopardy. Thinking he could fool God with his hard heart, the hard heart that God had made, Pharaoh thinks he's going to fool God. Instead of pleading for God's mercy and acknowledging and fearing God for who he was, he resisted. And we can sometimes fall into that trap. We know the right words to say. We know the right answers when it comes to being obedient. We know how to act in front of other Christians. But they're just words if there's no action. Barbara and I had this discussion this morning talking about one of the children. He says all the right things. He echoes back what we have told him. Advice, counsel. But the actions don't demonstrate the words. In other words, he's telling us what he thinks we want to hear. We are just as capable of that. It's what Pharaoh did. It's what our children do. And quite frankly, it's what we do sometimes. 
I will tell you what I think you want to hear. For any, any number of reasons. To get you off my back. <laughs> to gain some kind of agreement or respect from you. I'll say it so that you think I'm really interested and I'm going to do something about it. But they're just words without action. Isn't that what the whole book of James is about? Faith without action, faith without works. They're only our words if they don't have actions. God's words produce action. God says something and it happens. We don't have that ability. But we do have the ability to make our actions match our words. Pharaoh had that ability, but he didn't use it. He lied. And now everything around him has been destroyed. It's chaos. The kingdom is coming apart. But Pharaoh's desire to remain in charge, to be his own man, to be his own boss, to be his own God, his desire to maintain his authority over others in spite of the chaos around him, no matter how many people he hurt, no matter how many of his own people no longer believed he was an effective leader, no matter how many of his people had decided to follow God instead of him, his heart was hard and it sought its own desires. This next plague, the plague of locusts, will destroy everything that remains. Almost. And we'll look at that in the final two plagues. Now I've mentioned to you many times the theme of decreation and creation. God is tearing down something that he has built. Even though in Pharaoh's mind, he and his ancestors built the kingdom. And God was destroying the kingdom for that very reason. Because Pharaoh thought it was his to rule over as he pleased because he viewed it as his kingdom pharaoh believed he knew what was best what was good for his kingdom even though those around him particularly those in positions of authority knew better they knew and the people knew something had to change but the pharaoh couldn't see it i hope you also seen in these plagues connections to the book of revelation so we go from the beginning, Genesis, to the end of the Bible, and these plagues, and Pharaoh's hard heart is in play. And as always, when God brings judgment, it's accompanied by redemption. Now, I'm going to close this morning by taking us to the Psalms. And the Psalms will be relevant again the next time. In particular, Psalms 1 and 2. Now, in our Bible, Psalm 1 and 2 are two separate psalms. If you've studied the psalms, you know that they are really one psalm. They are divided in this manner for a number of reasons. But Psalm 1 shows us two different paths. The path of righteousness and the path of the wicked. We are shown that the righteous does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners, and does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Instead, the righteous delights in the law or the teaching or the instruction of the Lord. And as a result, the righteous are blessed 
they are truly happy. And the wicked not so. They can't stand in the judgment, Pharaoh's magicians. They can't stand with the righteous. They are like chaff and they're blown away. They're going to perish. And Psalm 2 begins with this question. Why do the nations rage and people plot in vain against God? And pretty much the rest of the psalm, the psalmist is talking about kings and rulers. They plot against the Lord and seek to break free from his reign. And God laughs from heaven at their plan. They're like Pharaoh, thinking they're really in charge. Who is this Yahweh that I should listen to him? Foolishly believing this is my kingdom. I built this. I made this. I am king over all. But God already has a king. One who is enthroned in heaven. The psalm does not say that earthly kings are a bad thing. In fact, God has appointed earthly kings. The point of the psalm is the same as Psalm 1. There are two ways. One a blessing, one a perishing. Now hear the end of Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Just as you and I must, the kings of the earth must yield to the one true king. They must seek their refuge in Christ. And I don't have time this morning to develop this idea of refuge. But we will next time because it's important. It's enough for now to remind us not to live our lives like Pharaoh lived his. For he died in judgment because of a heart that only sought its own pleasure, its own desire. Pharaoh's situation and his position in leadership at that time in history were indeed unique. But his false words, his heart heart, and the pursuit of his selfish desires are not that unique. They are the result of sin, and each and every one of us is affected by that. A man's glory, a woman's glory, in reality is worth so little compared to the glory in which we shall one day share when we enter our final rest with Christ. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Make your words matter. Don't let them just be words. Words with actions. Words that benefit others instead of yourself. Make your refuge in Christ. Father, thank you for this day, this day that we might gather, we might be drawn into your presence by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might sing our praises to you, we might confess our sins to you, and we might be fed from your word and renewed in our spirit. Father, thank you. In Christ's name, amen.